David, we're doing a sound check. Sit down. That works. <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. Track and optimize your application performance. Go to rubyrogues.com. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com. ruby this episode is sponsored by the Ultimate DevOps Academy. They will be taking your complete Rails app through the entire automation staff. Complete configuration management, CI, auto-deploy, auto-scale, and at the end you'll have a top-to-bottom setup with all the tools for running a fully integrated production environment. The course has a live interactive webcast for instruction, but everything is recorded so you can work through it all at your own pace and save materials for later use. Plus, there will be lots of Q&A, help sessions, labs, etc. to ensure success for everyone. Go sign up at ultimatedevops.com. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 116 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have James Edward Gray. You will die. Avi Grimm. Hello from Austin. Josh Susser. It's really warm here. Katrina Owen. Hello from the chilly room in Austin. David Brady. Wow, you guys all sound like you're in the same room. The acoustics are perfect. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and yes, we are recording from our retreat. So, we are looking at each other, not virtually. This is wild. We can so, see our faces. Do, do people know what our retreat is? Yeah, tell yeah. us. Yeah, let's talk about it really quickly. Okay. Um, if you, we, we will be posting the episode that we did at uh, Lone Star Ruby Conference, and that kind of explains as well, but we got together to write the Ruby best practice patterns that uh, Kent Beck recommended that we write a year and a half or so ago. Right. So we've been here two days, and that's it, the book's done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got to edit it now. It's Ruby fast practice patterns is what we ended up with. So we all came here to it's Austin. It's also the line of types. Yeah, we all came here to Austin for Lone Star RubyConf. We did a panel, and then we, we uh, ran off south of the river and were hiding in a house from the sweltering heat and uh, writing and watching cool movies and eating yummy food. Yeah, when Josh it. says house, he <laughs> means slash castle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. are, you, are you talking about the house that's the front of the house or the house that's the back of the house? I th- I'm talking about the house that's the top of the house. Yeah. <laughs> this is the house that Emacs built. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a turret. Yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll post Katrina. videos and stuff and pictures. So. Katrina is sleeping in there. She is sleeping in there. Turret, yeah. We joke around. I want to make sure people know. Yes, she actually slept in the turret. <laughs> she does man the ion cannon. Yeah, right. Don't get talking here. We did try to go for a walk yesterday, and it really killed one of us. And My feet melted. It was mostly successful, and David seems to have survived. Unfortunately. It was a near thing. Yep. We'll try harder next time. Yeah. <laughs> we, we only got kicked out of one facility. That's true. We were not quite arrested. <laughs> And Dana was gracious enough, enough not to look at Dave and say, I pulled you some. That's true. <laughs> well, I walked back in about, I had heat exhaustion, and I looked at him right in the face, and I said, I was right, and you are not staying vertical. <laughs> <laughs> so we're writing a book. Uh, that's that's going well, but we figured while we're all in a room together, we should record a podcast. Yeah. Yep. So today we're going to talk about non-Rails Ruby projects. 
You mean Sinatra? <laughs> or Padrino. Or Padrino. Yeah. Or perhaps command line clients, uh, applications. Raspberry Pi? Or scripts. Raspberry Pi. Wait, Ruby does stuff other than web? Absolutely. <laughs> it's getting complicated. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on something right now that's not a web thing at all. It's a, it's just like a background process that slurps stuff out of one database, massages it around, and puts it in another database. And I was like, I have no idea how to do all this stuff right. Rails always holds my hand and tells me how to put the project together and makes everything wonderful. And wow, it's a lot of work to make this stuff work right on my own. In particular, if you need threading or demonizing or that sort of thing, it's not something you do every day. Yeah, it's a good point. It's unusual. Yeah, and even the simple stuff like how do you require all the files, that, all the Ruby files that you need? Because Rails usually just auto-loads all that for me. Let's talk about that. It came up on Perlane recently. There was a lot of discussion about it. Some people uh, thought that um, you maybe require the file at the top of the hierarchy and then require relative everything from there. Can, can we put a pin in that for just a second? And, okay. And we, we talked a little bit about the kinds of like just, oh, here's a couple of kinds of projects. Right. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that before we get into okay. how we built them all. Sounds good. So, what kinds can you think of? So I, so I just said I'm, I'm writing a, like a daemon process that's going to sit there long term and just do some background processing. Okay. And we talked about, I joked about Raspberry Pi, but I guess that's a serious thing Actually, to talk about. I have so, Raspberry Pi. So we can talk so about that. Yeah. There's, there's Wait, Sinatra. you have a pie here and you haven't shared? <laughs> you were too busy eating Katrina's cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> we did a whole show on gems. I mean, that's right. sort of the obvious one that we maybe don't have to talk about just because we've already talked about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've talked about command line stuff, but I think there are kind of two classes of that, and one is where it actually provides you with a REPL of some kind, like IRB, mm-hmm. and then there are the other ones where you make a call from the command line and it does something. So as part of our work here, as we've been working on the book, a couple of times we've needed to go into uh, the book that uh, we're working off of, also our best practice patterns, and go through the table of contents to get a list of patterns. Uh, at one point, we used those to create files in a directory, like MP files that we could uh, flesh out, and uh, at another time, we used those to file issues on GitHub. So... In the first version, I wrote a literally on the command line Ruby dash ne basically and looped over the content uh, all on the command line. The second time, I made a very small script uh, that just you know had a small loop in the middle of it. And scripting is kind of a big topic that it would be nice to hit on. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. right. And and then there's things like uh, rake tasks. Rake tasks, sure. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Okay, so. Well, and then there's the whole DevOps world, which is kind of an extension of command line, but there's really a whole lot more to that. Or there's, there's management systems and things like that that go into it. That's a really good point. Recipes and stuff. We are going to run over time. (laughs) (laughs) We've got all night. We'll just keep talking. Yeah, that's right. Um, You get three episodes out of it. (laughs) Alright, so I think we've made the impression that there's a pretty diverse ecosystem where we go to specific issues. Sure. So you were talking about requiring things. Requiring. So this discussion was on Friday recently. People asking questions mainly related to require relative, but it ended up leading into what is the proper way to require things in my project? And there was some thought that you require the top level file, the first one in the chain, pretty much, and then require relative everything after that. 
Uh, there was another opinion that uh, require everything just changing the tags for those lower level things so they go from the directory the first one was in on down. Uh, so it would be like require with my project whatever file. And uh, yeah, Hoppy had a lot of great thoughts on that. You want to start this conversation? I've forgotten all of them. Um, <laughs> I can say what I, I do, and yeah. then you can tell me all the ways in which it's wrong, and we can go from there. Um, I like to put lib on my path, and then require just the paths, not require relative, but require the lower lower level paths from there. That seems very reasonable. It's not so bad? <laughs> put lib on your path? Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like in a lot of non-rail projects, I... Fairly early on, I wind up setting up some kind of sort of environment file, which, you know, is going to be, whether it's like in a rake task or, or in the main app or whatever, or, or testing, it's just going to set up like the load path. What's my database this time? Right. Or where is my, yeah, yeah, I almost always have Yeah, and then, and then like an individual files just having, having require, you know, foo slash bar and, and I, I kind of like the idea, the general idea of logical paths. What's and, a logical path? Like, to me, it's... Okay, so, you know how in, in Ruby you say require... Um, so, you know, you, you say require foo, but you don't say require foo.rb. Right. Um, and the reason for that is that, I mean, we normally think of Ruby files as being all .rb, but actually, you know, any a given Ruby implementation might support um, .so uh, for a shared object on a Unix system or .dll uh, for a shared object uh, on a... Uh, Windows system, um, and you, you know, theoretically, you could plug other things in there. So, like the the stuff that we require is already uh, kind of notionally a logical path because you're saying, "Give me this thing, this name thing," but I don't care which exact file it's in, especially um, if it's like a standard web or something. Right? right, and that and and that's nice because it gives you the op- the opportunity to as like you know move from a pure Ruby library to a C implemented library later on. Um, and, you know, not have to change any, any of the requires because they just work. Um, and so that's like, to me, that's kind of the idea of a logical path is that it, it looks like a path, but it's not necessarily referring to one specific place in the files, file system. It's, it's, it more refers to a thing that, you know, a name or a category of functionality. So I think I have bad habits according to Avi. Based on what you just said there, I, I thought that way too. And, I, in the past, what I've done is use that logical path to load my code in the beginning, or my gem, or my whatever, uh, just like you do with a standard library. But then from there, I have, in the past, just required relative everything below that. And my thinking there was, at that point, the resolution has happened. That name has resolved to my particular code, and that I want the resources... I want the rest of the resources that were related to that particular piece of my code, like that particular version of the software or that particular thing. Uh, but on part way, you kind of uh, said that probably wasn't the best group. Well, I mean, I don't feel super strongly about it. I think it's pretty reasonable. And to be honest, like especially when I'm doing command line, one-off command line stuff, um, kind of all bets are off. I mean, I'm not real strict about it. Um, I've... I've when I'm doing command line stuff, I'll often throw a require relative in there just because it's the fastest way from point A to point B, and I don't have to worry about making sure that my environment file is always included. But um, I will say that that I've found I've occasionally 
found that using logical paths leads to a little bit more flexibility. Uh, and the example I gave on the Parley discussion was where you want to basically shim out a piece of a library that's normally required. Like if you have, I've seen cases where libraries will require like OS specific stuff that really shouldn't be required. And, and it's not enough to just monkey patch it. You can't just get it out after the fact. It's going to like break the load, you know, when it actually tries to load it the first time. And so if they're using logical paths, then you can actually override what it, you know, by, by fiddling with Ruby's load path, you can actually override what's get, what gets loaded by providing your own stuff that matches that path that's found somewhere else in the load path. That sounds pretty evil. It's a it's a last ditch effort. It's it's not something you distribute necessarily, but it's it's a way to avoid, say, like opening up the gem on your hard drive and editing the gem, which you also do. Um, I do it all the time. <laughs> which, I, <laughs> which I also do, but it'd be nice to avoid. And also, you can't you so I can't give that to I can't edit that gem on my disk and then easily give that to somebody else on my team. Sure. Whereas I can put a shim like that in. You know, as well as some some stuff in the environment file that that loads the right path into the the Ruby load path, and I can say, okay, look, this is our workaround for right now. Is we're going to shim this thing out using using the load path so, shenanigans. So I I think that that's a, a incredibly uncommon case, <laughs> and, and and that you know being such a, a low low frequency thing to to worry about. I will issue. say though that like the the logical path thing is what I normal I think is the the norm in yeah. in gems. So, so, so one of the things that tripped me up recently with requiring was the you know, in in Ruby 1.8 land dot you know the current directory the current working directory for the app is on the load path. Right. But that is a security. <coughs> yeah, yeah, that's a security issue. So they took that out in Ruby 1.9. It's, okay. it's sort of like putting dot on the path in Unix. Okay. You know, so if somebody drops a file in there, they, you know, they can run it. And, okay. and that can be dangerous. So I, so I understand why they took that out, but then they put require relative in, which made it, which sort of solved all those problems for you and introduced, I don't know, maybe a few others. But, you know, I, I like the putting stuff on your, on your load path. Although the approach that I usually take was something that Yehuda Katz showed me where you create a file which is basically the root of your require hierarchy. So like when you do a gem, within the gem file structure, say you're, you're doing the, uh, I don't know, refraction gem, you'd have a, you know, in, in lib you would have refraction RB that would Require all of the direct, all the directories and files that are peers of it. And, uh, so if you, oh, this is so hard to talk about this stuff. I'm just like waving my hands. But there, there, it basically walks down the directory hierarchy within lib. And at each level, all it does is require the things that are one level beneath yeah. it. Right. And then, and then each of those things, if you have a subdirectory within there, there's a file that knows how to require all the things that yeah. in there. Everything you require is explicit. You can control the order things are required mm -hmm. in, so that, so that dependencies get, yeah. get sorted out I correctly. Think everybody gets to a point at some point in Ruby where they think, I know, I'll be clever. I'll throw all this in an array and each over it and then build up the paths. Just don't do that. Yeah, yeah you glob file directories. Yeah. 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 Right. It seems like a great idea, but then you wind up screwing stuff up with, with, with load order. And, and I, I like what you're saying, Josh, because it's... Um, you know, it's kind of an object-oriented way of, of dealing with it. You know, each directory knows it has its own has its own way of loading stuff beneath it, and you're not doing that all like all up at the top. Uh, yeah, and the nice thing is that if you if you add a file to a subdirectory somewhere, you only have to change add a require statement 
to one file. Yeah. One file. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to say one thing about require relative is that I, I, I think, and I just kind of figured this out, I think if your require relatives have a lot of dot dots in, it, in them, then I Ooh, think, yuck. well, and that's what I've, I've seen, how I've seen it used a lot, and, and I think that's a danger sign, because if, you're, if your require relatives have a lot of dot dots in them, you're gonna see breakage eventually. You're gonna have passive break. Require relative is also a tricky beast too because it uh, it requires the current file path and can be scenarios where you don't have that. For example, a rack up file is read in and then evaled. Right. So you actually don't have that context. So if you require relative in there, it just blows up what it has. Right. Rack up is like the first place I started loading live onto my path actually. Yeah. I do use require relative when I give a test suite to the students. Like, I have no idea where they're going to run this test suite from. Right. And so require relative will tell them that this file that they're going to make that doesn't exist will be in the same directory as the test file that they're currently running. I think that's totally reasonable. I use require relative to get to my code from my test suite. Um, yeah. And I don't, I mean, to me, I, at that point, I'm not concerned with things like gem load paths and logical paths. I'm just like, this test file here belongs to that code file over there. So, so, so the, the scenario I just described is walking down directory hierarchies recursively, you know, basically a level at a time. I'm, I've been using require relative for that. And it's really nice because if you move stuff around, it's, you just move it around. Yeah, but it's, it is. It's it's a it's a relative period. How long, it's not a, how long require relative is? Yeah, it, it's just it's actually long enough that it feels like a an occasional thing, like something to be used occasionally instead of. Well, it's just a method. Create an alias for it. Yeah, yeah. Rocky hates require relative. That's the moral of this discussion. I don't hate it. <laughs> I'm just. A He's little. afraid of it. Yes, I'm afraid of it. There you go. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so so requiring is that is there more to say about requiring? No, Chuck, but. No, I was just going to say, um, I'm, I'm kind of curious about what other configuration or setup issues you run into where Rails really does just auto-load everything. Yeah. Well, auto-loading. Auto-loading is <laughs> a good thing, right? It, it, and actually, I have one kind of related to that. And actually, I need to beg the core team for this at some point. It seems like in about 80% of all the projects I make out of Rails, at some point I want to do the name trick of the underscored file to the camel case word or whatever. And so I always end up writing my own underscore and camel case methods as some kind of utility because they're in active support and I don't want the dependency on active support for those two things. I rewrite blank all the time. Yeah, blank, right. There's some things that I would love to see promoted to uh, Ruby itself. But I think if I could have, if I could have any two methods, I would take camel case and underscore because I use them for some kind of loading logic somewhere. That's a good point. So, so speaking of auto loading, uh, the word is that it's deprecated. Yes. So, or, or at least it, people are advising against using. So, it. let's talk about the problem with auto loading. Uh, actually, it's a problem with require in general, right? Require is basically not threats, but because requiring typically happens as a program is loading up. It's generally not a problem for it to not be directed. The problem with auto-loading is it moves require to indeterminate times in the middle of your program execution. Then you take the not thread safe problem and put it in a place where it has potentially too much comments. So there's problems with uh, redefining constants, with removing constants is particularly difficult. 
It's a, it's a nasty, nasty, tricky little problem. Yeah, it seems cool in that, oh, this is great if they never use this system, then it never has to be loaded from the disk. But the truth is, if you're not Rails, your load time is just probably not the bottleneck. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. loading up. Well, you probably there. also don't need to reload. I mean, to me, that's right. the, that's the that's big win of auto of Rails style auto loading. Right, is is reloading, in, you know, without loading up the whole thing again. And probably most projects, you probably don't have to do that. If you need real code reloading, switch to Ruby. Yeah, I mean, Ruby's just not very good at, at code reloading. Period. And honestly, if if your if your code is taking too long to load, well, then. I actually don't have a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, think of something funny and say it later. Yeah. <laughs> in Sinatra, my problem isn't that the project takes too long to load. It loads really, really quickly, but I keep forgetting to reload it. Yeah. So I'm checking the website. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm reloading the page, not seeing my behavior, running, you know, running some command against an endpoint that I just defined, and it's not there. And it takes, it always takes me a few seconds to realize that, oh, I forgot to that's right, yeah. There Sinatra are, projects that have There are ways around that. Sinatra has Sinatra. Really yeah, but every six so months, they, they roll out a, a new, new recommended one. way yes. to reload stuff in Sinatra. So, this is true. So, so, here, I've done, I use Shotgun, and it has worked for as long as I can remember. But it's deprecated I, now. Okay. okay. Well, not, no, not deprecated. They, that's not the one they say. No, it, it works. works if you're on a Mac or Linux. Ah, on Windows, it does not. Nice. So if on because Windows, it, yeah, you need important. to get the Sinatra contrib gen and yeah. use the reloader. Yes. But that's, like, neither of those are the ones that they're talking about now. See, I've had, I've had <laughs> trouble with reloader in the past. Like, I've had some things where it will reload and some things that won't reload. Well, regardless of whether or not I have reloading on, I just kind of restart my app. Occasionally. Oh, that, yeah, anyway. exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point. I mean, Rails offers a lot of niceties, right? And things like active support that give us niceties of language or things like it's reloading code that make development environments simpler. And it's hard to know how much of that you want, you know, in some project. Okay, so here's something that Rails does that I don't like and that I really like when I'm outside of Rails. Rails loads everything, everywhere. So when I have uh, my own app, if I have a Sinatra app, uh, I, I have the app part that is like the, the views and the view helpers right. and the, the actual endpoints that are defined. And then I have the, the my my application logic, yes. um, which I put under lib, uh, lib and then the name of the, of the app. And then I have the, the command line app part, which wraps, usually includes all of the domain logic, like the actual application logic. But the application logic doesn't need the command line app logic. The application logic also doesn't need the Sinatra app. That's um, a, so, great. so within lib, when I'm when I'm in my own projects, I feel like I I'm free to require fewer things in in all the little parts and just be very specific about which dependencies I'm coupling together. I guess. I'll bet your tests run really fast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's great because like if you're writing a rate task to just throw some entries in a database or something. You don't need the Sinatra stuff for that. Right, right. Yeah. right. You just require that application logic and go. Right? Oh, I have another thing about requiring. I In one of my gems recently, somebody refactored my command line app part of the gem to put the require statement at the top of the file instead of inside of each yes. uh, each method definition. Yes. And I actually rejected that pull request. You like them in the method definitions? In the cl- command line 
uh, application yeah. because if I just say my command, it shows me all of the commands, it, the documentation, right? The, all of the commands that you can actually do without loading my application. So that that is uh, that is a, a plus on the require statements inside. It, it's been it, it has minuses, um, and, and it's been discussed heavily. In fact, Max has talked about it in the past. Uh, one is that, again, you've moved non-thread safe code to the middle of the application. Right. So, uh, that's a problem. Two is that it looks like it's scoped, like in a lexical scope, but it's not. Once that require fires, it's required. Yeah. And it's not lexically yeah. scoped. So. Now that said, this is a command line application. Right. So yeah, yeah. it's gonna, yeah. it's gonna, like, it's going to load and either just figure out what methods are available and show that and then exit, or it's going to load, figure out which method to call, load that, run it, right. and exit. Yeah, no, I think you, I think you probably have a legitimate use there. Like, I, I don't think it's a problem, but that is one of the reasons it's fallen out of favor. Right. So that's totally crazy. That's the one place where you're, it's in, not totally you're in bizarre crazy. world, so it's okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, so it always frustrates me in a Rails application when I say rate dash capital T, and it takes 18 seconds to give me hey, one What? So, the Rails tasks, or rate tasks, handle that by, there are some tasks that are dependent on the environment and load the whole application, and then there are some that don't. It still takes forever to actually show me which tasks are there, though. Oh. Yeah, oh, you know why? Because it has to load all of the tasks from all the gems. Right, right. Mm -hmm. right. So. So. Yeah, and that's what makes it slow. Boo-hoo. Okay, so what else? Lots of, <laughs> lots of talk about require. What are another, what's other... Folder method? structure. Folder Ooh. structure, let's oh, do yeah. that. So, I was going to bring that up. Can I talk about uh, CLI app structure? Sure. Okay, so this is something that I personally have pain with and love at the same time. So let me throw this out, and then you guys can tell me how I'm wrong. Um, when I build a command line interface app, I have a bin folder, I have a lib folder. Um, bin only contains drivers. They, all they do is reach over into lib, and I, yeah, require relative dot dot lib. Uh, I have a config folder sometimes, and then I have a tester spec folder. I have a gem file that contains mini tester rspec or uh, trollop or standard op. I have a rake file that all it does is launch the test suite, and I have a dot getting local. Uh, the pains that I have with this are that I end up putting models in the lib directory, and lib slash model slash something feels weird to me, but app slash models doesn't. But I seem to disfavor having a slash app at my root, at least at first. And that, yeah. So tell me how I'm wrong and how I get better. So in my gems, I have lib and then the gem name. And then I have stuff. If I have a command line app, I have lib, I have the name of the app, and I have all of my models inside of that folder. So what Katrina is describing right now is actually the recommended, according to RubyGems, I believe, in that ideally we should be namespacing our our stuff that we're putting in lib, and so the structure is lib, you have some top-level file that you require in there, much like Josh guide, but then you, the rest of your code lives under some namespace, mm -hmm. and that folder in there that is the name of your project, that's the namespace. And that's essentially your app folder. And, um, I, I, would, I don't know if I would go so far as to call it that. What do you got? So, when I'm doing a Sinatra app, 
I have lib, and inside of lib I have app, which is my Sinatra app. Mm-hmm. So I have app.rb, and then I have an, a directory named app, which has all of the views, all of the public, ah. the, the JavaScripts, and everything, and any, if I break out my, my, my API endpoints per, like, giving them names by resources, that's also within the app directory. Mm-hmm. Now, next to that, I have the name of my application, which is going to be my, all of my domain logic, all of my actual application logic. And I have, of course, so I have, if the, if the application name is, uh, rogues, it's rogues.rb and then a uh, directory named rogues where all of that is underneath there. If I also have a command line app here, I'm going to have cli.rb right inside of lib, which is where I define the endpoints, but that is just a wrapper for domain logic usually, unless there's any very specific stuff. In which case, I have a CLI directory, which contains all of the specific stuff to the So, so it's sort of like a side door into things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a kind of interesting point of view. One of the reasons for the standard directories, especially the ones Dave mentioned, is uh, RubyGems is aware of certain directories by default. There was also an old mechanism of installing, which is pretty much gone these days, but you used to be able to stick a setup.rb file in your um, directory, and uh, you could do a manual install from that. And it, too, was aware of these key directories. Bam, lib, doc, test, spec. Um, there's a couple more, I think. Uh, data, it's aware of data directory. Uh, anyways, it, it's these standard directories. So... If you go outside of those and you need to build a Ruby gem or something, you will probably need to specify in the gem spec that you have some kind of special thing. I do similar to Katrina, except that I usually put the... So in the case of models, which you mentioned, I would probably have my project with my project, and then I'm not afraid to make subdirectories in there. So I often do like a models directory in there, and I'll put my models inside some module. So are there any peer directories now for lib? Because it sounds like everything I would keep outside of lib is inside your lib. As long as it's part of my application, I do keep config outside of lib, and I keep database outside of lib. Like if I have a a SQLite 3 or a pstore or anything like that, I'll keep that outside of lib. Um, What, what What if you're generating like executable binaries? Exec- generating executable binaries. Yeah, yeah like so when I go to CLI, I have runnable scripts that don't end in .rd. Right, they go in the bin directory. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, anything in there, in my opinion, should be a require statement, a method call, or right. something. Much, yeah. So really you require CLI.rd and then run CLI. Yes. And here's rgef. Yeah, it's it's my, uh, you know, my module, my class uh, dot run. And then I find this interesting because I tend, kind of like what Dave is saying, I tend to put all that stuff outside of the lib folder unless it's going to be shared to somebody else via bundler or as a rack endpoint for another rack app or things like that. Then I'll put it all under lib. But otherwise, you know, if it's kind of the top-level app and it owns the space, then I'll put app models, app views, you know, in Sinatra and, and just kind of have it all, you know, sit out there. My main app is, you know, main app dot RB, and that's out in the main folder. And and the reason is is because I don't need that extra level of um, organization, you know, to go live my app, whatever. I, I don't need that level because this is the app. But if it's if it's kind of a container that says 
here's this app that you're going to use as part of your app, then that that's when I tend to go more along the lines of what you do. But it it, it is interesting that everybody kind of invents it outside of Rails, the whole structure. How do you decide about dependencies? I mean, like, something like Active Support could give you a whole bunch of tools if you want to, you know, bring it over. But I'm usually hesitant to do that until I need a fairly significant portion of it. And I am aware that Active Support allows me to require the individual pieces these days. I don't have to take the whole thing. But, um, but how, how do you make those decisions? My rule of thumb is three methods. And then I just require active support. Unless the bin file has to be performed. I try to require the specific part of active, active support right. that I'm looking for, but it takes me so long to figure out which exactly Where it is, it is right? Sometimes yeah. it's date calculations, but it's actually in fixnum because it's fixnum right. that knows that it should deal with the date. Sometimes it's the other way around. And I, I find it very difficult to figure out what I actually mean. Right. Hmm. Any other thoughts about other or not? I mean, I, I guess I'm a little more resistant when I'm making a non-Rails project. Like, when I'm in Rails, it's like, ah, throw it in that file, whatever. Already, I need it, I need it. You've know. already binged the You're binge right. Out. Once everything's in there already, I throw it in there. But in my own projects, I find myself asking, do I really need this, or can I roll one little method that does exactly what I need, this not too big? And, and then I hope I'm good about, you know, when, I, when I'm like, okay, this is getting ridiculous, I'm going to get this you know, or, or whatever. I find a continuum where, like, I, I start writing what a, what's going to end up being a CLI app, but at the time I think I'm writing a glue script. So it's 50 lines long, it's in one file, everything is right there, and then it grows, so it has to evolve. And so, like, the lib directory will appear, and then it must grow more before lib models will appear and I'll reorganize files. And then it must grow more before... So it's totally okay to have these things grow over time. You don't have to start with... Build that, you know, cargo called the Rails folder structure or the cargo called the Rogues file folder structure if you're starting with something scripted. Do you guys use Bundler for your non-Rails application? Oh, sure. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Always. <laughs> um, actually, Bundler has some really nice features for non-Rails applications. Like with a console. Uh, okay, the console is great. Yes. Bundler has a console? Yes. It'll, it'll <laughs> console it, it your will load, It will load your bundle and set everything up and basically require and then dump you into an IRB session. I'll be back in 20 minutes. <laughs> it has that. Another feature that's really handy if you're building a gem, um, you're already going to resolve your dependencies for your gems. And remember that gem specs can now differentiate between things that are normal dependencies and things that are development dependencies. You set all that up in your gem spec, you go into Bundler and you call the gem spec method. And Bundler will build uh, the bundle according to what the gem spec specifies. Yes, I like how it does that. You guys so, just improved my life so much. I can't even tell you. Yeah, it has some nice features for using in apps, and I definitely agree that you, you should use Bundler. So, so that's like the reverse of what it does when you're building a gem. That's correct. Right? If you're defining yes. a gem, you can say, oh, do, you know, oh, here's my gem file, just pull everything out of the gem spec. Yes. And you're saying create my gem spec based on all the stuff. No, 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 no. I was referring to the one you said first. Oh, okay. Where right. it pulls everything out of the gem spec. Yeah. Okay. And it can be really handy for just, um, you know, making sure that, you know, the things you're doing with Bundler on the command line actually match your gem specs. Okay. I have a callback to something we obviously said about having that, that environment file for the requires. I have this sacred cow that says if you're building an application, you can do anything you want with a load path. But if you're building a library, 
thou shalt not touch it that's, because you're going to screw somebody else's. That's a pretty mm-hmm. big policy because um, things like gems and bundler and cherubi uh, and stuff like that, they all work by manipulating the road path, right, or, or various paths. Um, and so if you are also throwing directories in the path, then you can run afoul of that system. Right, because you wind up loading libfoo.rb instead of gemfoo. Right. We, we talked about this, I think, a fair amount on the gems episode. Yes, that's right. So I think, I think that's a pretty good rule. If you are constructing yeah. something to be a gem, the load path is probably the best thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, how about testing? Testing. Okay. Testing. Yes, yes. do it. Cool. How? <laughs> so, 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 so conversation. Okay, so totally spoiled by Rails. I mean, they, mm-hmm. Rails comes with a bunch of these rate tests yeah, for, for running tests yeah, that, that make my life so much easier. I don't have to think about this stuff. For both can, RSpec and test. Uh, yeah, so I can, I can just drop in RSpec Rails or, mm-hmm. or mini test Rails and everything just goes. But if I don't have that structure, I actually have to figure out for myself how to set all that stuff up and make it work right. I confess that I was very late to come to Minitest. I love RSpec. Minitest spec does not give me enough of RSpec to make me like it. And it's different enough to make me hate it. And after reading Sandy Metz's book, and I saw how easy it was to just have Minitest be there, especially in Ruby 2, that was enough to seduce me over to Minitest side. Okay, but but then there's like, how do you invoke it? How do you how do so you test? So here's what I do. Um, when I first start the gem, I make you know whatever the first lib file is. I make the corresponding. Typically these days, I just go with our spec. Um, I like to run in our spec. I really do runs because the mocking is good. Mm-hmm. But uh, I will make the corresponding our spec file in the beginning. I'll just require a relative that one lib file and do it. The first time I find myself wanting any piece of test configuration, I extract spechelper.rb. Um, and I put spechelper in the directory, and then way. I switch my requires to just uh, hit spechelper instead, and, and uh, I require the, the test that way. Other than that, I mean, I haven't really had to do much more about that. The only thing is that if it's a big project, I eventually reach the point where I've had 90 test files in some directory, and it's like, okay, I should come up with some structure like Rails has, you know, of models, integration, kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. like that, so that it's not just one massive thing. Right. So I do a couple things. The first thing I do is is that I create a default rake task that will run all yes, of my tests. Yes, that's a great thing to do. And, and I do it first because I know that I'll forget and then I'll be annoyed. So I just know <laughs> about myself. Right, this is right, the, the thing. Right, so, it, right. So, oh, yeah. So, so I write that. But the other thing that I do is, is as these tests, like usually I'll just be running one test file at a time. So it's Ruby and then the path to the test file. But, but as it, the whole thing grows, I, I don't have one single test helper. I, I have one that is the minimal that just requires the library. Mm-hmm. Then I have one that will require, um, Rack test and anything that I need for APIs, which is my API test, and then I have one that requires all of the like database stuff that doesn't require rack test if I'm doing integration tests against the, the application, but not the API, etc. Um, so I have a usually end up with four or five different helpers. I think that is very wise, and if I was smart enough to do that, I would probably use that as my demarcation for the subdirectories underneath the 
Hester's packet, right? That Every time sense. I need another one of those files, that's a big enough context switch that I probably should just go ahead and make this up right I know she explained that, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, how do I get into G school again? Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was thinking that's very wise. <laughs> to, to Josh's question of how to set it up, uh, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I cargo pulled a rig file around that sets up my test suite. Does that do great testing? Yeah. I, you know, these days I tend to, I've gotten out of doing Ruby and the path of the text file. I just use RSpecs uh, launcher mm-hmm. for everything now. Mm-hmm. And it's because when I want to, then I can just add a switch to, what you can do this if you use many text, of course, you can do it by adding switches. Uh, but I can add switches to, um, uh, you know, pick out a specific example that I have failing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've gotten to where, Actually, in my own projects, I've kind of gotten away from using the default text because I want that command line control of our stuff. So yeah. I just use our I've stopped using the default rate fast because Chuck kept dropping the database. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that's never going to live that That's a good down. default act- action. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. That's not surprising. That doesn't violate the principle right. of least, oh crap. <laughs> Run rate database related. So, okay, so speaking it is not my fault. They said the test database and the development database are the same. Database. Okay, so, so speaking of that, I mean, that's actually a pretty significant thing it is in, your, in your testing yeah. setup. Yeah. And, you know, I had to deal with that too recently of, okay, we have a development database. How do we test this stuff without wiping out the development database? Yeah. We ended up doing the same sort of thing of having a, you know, a foo development and a foo test database. Yeah. And then the question was, what do we do about keeping things in sync in terms of the schemas? Yeah. And then it's like, well, do I go down the whole path of extracting all this stuff from Rails to every time I run tests, I want to make sure I dump the schema and load it into the, test environment? I was actually really surprised. The first, so I spent a lot of time writing Sinatra apps with active record backends, and I was very surprised that a lot of the migration stuff is baked into Rails, not baked into active record. You can't just um, require the active record uh, rake tasks and get all of the migrations and everything. It's yeah. directly. Uh, yeah, it's in a different gem. There, yeah. There's a gem called Sinatra Active Record. Yeah, I was very happy with it. It's not great. It gives you a little bit of it. Unless you generate a migration that has a particular name, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, and migrate I database, yeah. desperately now want to extract all the CLI and DevOps stuff out of Rails into a separate gem. Yeah, in a way, that would be great. One thing I think is funny is all of the things that we talked about just over the last couple of minutes. How many of you have built a Sinatra app and find yourself re-implementing Rails? Well, that's one of of the chief (laughs) complaints, right, is that that I think actually Steve Cognac complains about that a lot, that he runs into Sinatra apps that just, you know, rebuild massive parts of Rails. I don't feel like I do that. I do feel like I try to take a lot of Rails infrastructure, like, or at least let that inspire my infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Um, but once I get into the app itself, my opinion is I do think it's very good. I had a client that Chuck also had that Rails was a dirty word and there were politics involved. And so we built a Sinatra app and it ended up including every gem from Rails except for the Rails gem. Yeah, at that I, point, that's minus that two gems. And, um, yeah, we rewrote those ourselves probably. The second app that we built for them, we, we basically said, remember how painful this is? And we just said, here's a Rails app. And they went, oh, I guess we were wrong. That's, I, I actually saw a tutorial on the internet a while back that uh, was like, I'm going to show you how to write web apps and we're going to use Sinatra because it's significantly easier than Rails. And then they started a Sinatra app, imported 
like 75% of Rails mm-hmm. and wrote their pads in exactly Rails style. And it was yeah. like, this is not any easier. You've this got everything without your controller. Yeah. I started missed working the point on of the a, tool. Yeah, I started working on a tutorial last week, or I, I wrote the first draft of a tutorial last week um, that is for Sinatra. And it basically started out with the, the one page, sort of yeah. four five lines exactly. of code that is a whole app and let them run it. Yeah. And then, exactly, and then extract out the little runner into config rackup or rackup file. Yeah. And then as it grows out, can extract out the lib, extract out the, yes. you know, and it, it's, it's very different. Like it's still very tiny. Yes. But you, you do get the impression that, like, um, Steve Klavnik was, was doing this with his students in, in New York. And they were like, why do I have to do all of these things? What's all, all of these directories and everything? And of course, the next thing is like, Rails new. And they were like, oh, wow, that is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Let me hurt you so that you will appreciate the medicine that comes next. That's right. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, sometimes you wind up building an app and you're using nearly nothing that Rails gives you. Yeah. And you're, you're way better off going with Sinatra yeah, or something else. So it's, it's 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 interesting the trade offs that are there, and we've been talking about trade offs all since we got here. That's one of the great things I find. Like um, uh, I'm pretty Unix savvy, but if I'm writing a Rails application or something, I will be very reluctant to reach for those tools because it'll tie me to specific platforms and stuff like that. But if I'm implementing some command line application where I know where it's going to run, or a scripting tool especially, I have no qualms about just, you know, using Unix utilities or forking processes or, or all kinds of things. Okay, so so what's the weirdest kind of app thing, like setup that you've had to deal with? I mean, like, do, like Raspberry Pi? Or? Raspberry Pi runs plain Jane Ruby. It used to take, I, I had a Raspberry Pi pretty early on, and it used to take about four hours to build modern Ruby on a Raspberry Pi. It, if you use RVM binaries, you can get one really fast um, because there's a binary for it. So that's that. But yeah, I, I haven't noticed. It. I mean, it takes forever to fire up, and it doesn't run lickety split. But yeah, it's it's just Ruby. I think the strangest thing I worked on, and it it didn't go very well, just because I didn't know what I was doing. But it was like a an ETL type of thing, like just data pipes, uh, and we were using. What's ETL? Uh, extract, transform, load. So you have data in one format, and you do stuff to it, and you end up with data in a different format. So that's what I was just talking about. <laughs> <You're> doing, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. And and we so we had we had a zero MQ that was doing all sorts of things like we were getting data flowing through far too quickly for my taste. Like I couldn't figure out how to get things to flow in the like at a reasonable rate, everything was about piling or, or something was piling up here or empty here. I, I had no idea what was going on. Then we were we introduced Cassandra into the mix, which just confused me further. And uh, I, I think I worked on it for like 10 days. It was an experiment, and we never actually ended up doing anything with it, so I don't know. And there was threading and demonizing involved, which was just... Wow. Broke my brain. All the, much, all, the, yeah. all the challenges. All the challenges. So, so, so demonized uh, applications are, I think, a, a pretty significant class of applications. I remember, yeah. I remember hearing you do a podcast a couple years ago where you talked about the work that you did uh, figuring out how to demonize stuff for yes. when you were working with Hygroove or something. Yeah, like the, the, some of the versions of uh, Scout. Yeah, we yeah, that's our, right. We built our own agent. Uh, 
uh, for Scout, and um, Scout, in the beginning, is the basically just a cron job, a very simple script that Kid Gang every so often. Uh, I think they may have actually gone back to that at some point uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, but there was a version where we had a, a complex agent that basically ran as, uh, as a demon. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot of things to consider there. So, uh, first of all... I mean, is that like a whole episode for us to do? No, I mean, I even hit the highlights real quick. Just okay. like, you have, you have to demonize the application, which means certain things. You have to detach from the calling terminal, you know, redirect streams, things like that. There's a set of processes you have to do. Generally, you want to create a PID file somewhere. So that uh, the PID of your process has been written down. PID equals process ID. Process ID, right? And that's how you're able to send messages to this thing that you can no longer talk to or communicate with. But create the creation of a PID file, we could, I mean, if I told you the proper way to create a PID file, it would take most of an episode because it is incredibly complicated um, in order to dump that to a file to know that it's okay for you at this point to be dumping that to a file. It's a quite an involved process. Mm-hmm. And then things like, you know, blog files and stuff, which you have to get set up uh, before you detach so that you can complain if you can't do that or things like that. There's a, there's a very involved process of how you're going to run. And then in something like Ruby, I think you want to give heavy consideration if you're going to write a very long-running process. The worst thing you could do is just write your normal script and run it um, in Ruby, in my opinion. Um, what you instead want to do is you want to write a very dumb small shell at the top. It's basically just running some kind of loop. And when it needs to do something, it needs to fork off a process, do a whole bunch of work, and then exit that process. So that, that way GC can clean up all that memory and all that. Yeah, exit is the ultimate GC. Right? So, 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 so you like the Unix forking model? Absolutely. Yeah, it, and I think Ruby is built for that 100%. I mean, it, if you or at least MRI. MRI, that's true. That's true. Does, does MRI still bear out the old legacy of it's kind of leaky if you do long term? So that's, that's been long debated. Uh, does Ruby leak memory? And my answer is no, I don't think so. I don't believe that MRI leaks memory. This is what happens. One, when MRI requests new memory from heap, it will not return that. So if at some point you do a massive operation and collect a bunch of data and push that memory way up, that number will never go back down, even though you're not doing that big work anymore. So that makes it look like uh, memory gets bigger. Two, just normal usage of blocks. You have to be careful with every block is a closure and it grabs all of the surrounding state. Uh, if you have some long-lived resources in there and that, that block is saved in some way that it never goes out of scope, that stuff never gets GC ever, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful. If you use blocks like that incorrectly, you can make resources hang out for like a long, long time. I also made the mistake once of having an app that took strings from the user and converted them to symbols, which That's can't right. ever be this GC because they have to have the same object ID forever. That's right. You should pretty much never be dynamically creating symbols. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, because that's right. You don't get keys. Symbolize keys. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that we mentioned on an earlier show was I want to I want to pause that for pause that for just a second. Okay. And that's that when you're talking about the blocks as memory leaks, mm-hmm. this is the number one reason why if I'm if I'm in Rails, I will never do one of those class level macros like uh, you know validate or uh, you know before filter whatever where I specify a lambda within the class context. I always will choose the form where I specify a symbol, specify a symbol, which is the name of the method, which you call. You have to think about blocks, and every time you issue a block, it's capturing the surrounding context. Yeah. Right. Okay, so. So, for demonizing processes, uh, this became a little bit better in Ruby 1.9, I believe. Uh, And... Tim Pease, one of the GitHubers in Boulder, has written a gem called Servalux. That's right. Servalux is awesome. It's awesome. Yes. It's very good. Uh, yeah, the thing Katrina is referring to in Ruby 1.9 is process daemon. Uh, it's now, it's core in Ruby. You have it without any required statements, and it will do the proper, a proper, uh, daemonized process is these 10 very cryptic, uh, statements, and it will run through that process. So. We'll do the right thing. Uh, so, yeah. one, one weirdo thing that I did is, uh, I think it was at RailsConf when we were all there, and I never did finish the app, but it was a command line app that you could put in the ID for a tweet, and it would pull the content of the tweet in and, and eval it effectively in Ruby. And so, the- Are you insane? The, <laughs> so, yeah, I was waiting for that. So the, the, the case was, how do I make this so that it's not going to trash somebody's system when they get the wrong tweet? And, uh, you know, there are gems out there that do it, but it is a really tricky problem to solve. Sandboxing is not easy. Yeah, no, not sandboxing is very complicated. Ruby has a safe mechanism. I couldn't in good conscience recommend it. It, it really doesn't do anything for you. Well, it's, the problem with safe is it's a basically a set of massive hacks all through the interpreter that disable and enable various things at various levels. So if you believe they got that 100% right, mm-hmm. you're good to go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, do you, and do you think all the test cases are, are like worked out for that? Exactly. Yeah. So let me tell you that it is very common for bugs to be filed against safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But NV Labs has a gem, and there were one or two other gems that kind of sanitize the VM so that you can't do the at least the obvious things. And, uh, so you require them and run it all in that context, but it's, it's still hard to make sure that it doesn't do silly things. And so, anyway, you usually don't run into that with Rails, but, uh, evaluating user input is scary. So, so I have a, a completely off the wall topic that everyone may, uh, gong <laughs> for, for, the, for this episode, which is self-contained executables. Self-contained executables. That is actually a really interesting topic. I forcibly not gong that. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what you, you mean. You mean like, like a microgram.exe on Windows? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, or, or, you know, or like whatever.app. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that Mac Ruby on, on the Mac lets you do something like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Uh, actually, that, yes, shoes is a great example. Also, Ruby Motion will now build OS 10 but it does it still do that through static compilation so it doesn't actually run a Ruby interpreter as part of the process it actually just runs on the um, what is it called? on the native 
Yeah. Objective C platform. Yeah, the runtime, the Objective C runtime. Yeah. Yes. So I, I don't really know anything about how these work on any of the systems except just a little bit of hearsay. So yeah. I, I haven't ever built one. It seems like a really cool thing to be able to do. Yeah. Um, what is that framework LineChat has written? It. You know what I mean? LineChat is um, it's a IRC client on Mac OS ten. Oh yeah, and I remember it's that. Written in uh, it's Ruby written, Coco. It, is it Ruby Coco? Yeah. Is that the precursor to uh, to Mac Ruby? I guess Ruby no, Coco. Ruby Motion. Yeah, I think it is yeah. actually kind part of. of kind of part of what became Ruby Motion. Maybe that's a future episode topic. Yeah, yeah I that, that could be kind of fun. There are some interesting tricks to doing apps themselves. Like if you are just going to have an app installed, and we've seen that before, like Vagrant uh, and stuff. Right? Um, but one one thing people often do, which is kind of interesting, is build a Sanatra app and use Bin as the server because it actually takes a really small uh, config to fire up Sanatra under Bin. And if you're under thin, you basically have a vent machine underneath it, mm-hmm. which means you've got invented programming if you need it. And there's some kind of cool tricks there. I, there's a good blog post about that. I'll see if I can hunt up. Cool. Okay. So. One of the things we kind of talked about is logging. Logging. It's a good, it's a good experience. Possibly the biggest pain ever. It is the biggest pain. I haven't figured out how to do it cleanly, where to put my log files, where to define the logging, uh, do I, do I use syslog, do I not use syslog, how do I thread logging through my application? I don't, I don't I have a really know. good answer for you. It depends. Yeah, I have another good answer for you. Listen to the, uh, the episode with Tim Peace. Well, that was with Tim, Tim wasn't it? There's Tim. Yep. Boy, we should have Tim on for this episode. <laughs> Tim, where are you? I think I did listen to it, and I still don't care. Yeah. <laughs> so we were really genuine. There's a lot what, to say about that. We didn't, the, yeah, we didn't go into best practices at all for that, but it really does depend on what you're logging and what you care about. One of the best things I ever heard about logging uh, that really changed the way I think about it is to remember that logging is a feature and needs to be like a, treated as such. Like It's often just expected that as part of knocking out stories and Pivotal or whatever, we did that feature plus logging. Mm-hmm. But that's not true, right? It's that ha- deciding all of these things you just mentioned, that takes time and energy to decide where to put the files. At. The thing about logging is how are they going to be rotated out so they don't fill this hard drive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things like that. And that is a feature like any other and should be a separate part of development where you figure all those. Yeah, and how do I format my logs? Because I'm I, I'm likely to want to to script things that consume the logs. Right. And how do you how do you distribute the logger throughout your application? Rails usually have a logger somewhere nearby in the controller or whatever. But so I I'm kind of confess on this and say that I often just throw a some kind of kind of global constant, globally available constant that I can set up in a config file and everybody can get to uh, on the logger. And I sometimes feel a little bit bad about doing it, you know, like, oh, no, I'm using a global variable. But at the same time, logging is one of those cross-cutting concerns that 
I try to only apply it in the minimal level of places. Like, I try to get it to the right spots where, you know, the main uh, thing is what does the login so I don't have login code in every single mm-hmm. class. But also for, it's like Chuck just said, when I'm in Rails and I want to debug something, I can do logger that info, you know, or whatever. I really like having that when I'm working with an application or something. And after reading... So I'm probably a bad person. After reading... no, Well, maybe. Uh, but after, <laughs> after reading Pooter, um, I still want my glo- my logger globally, but I also want it decoupled, and so I end up building at almost the highest level of the application. I build a dependency injector that injects a logger, and so I can build it up and inject it, and later on, like in my test suite, if I want to hack it out, I can't. I have to admit, most of the time, I just don't log anything, I just puts. Again, it depends on how much persistence you want and how much flexibility you want around it. So, if if you if you need it to persist, then you're going to put it to some system that writes it to disk. If you want flexibility, you may put it into a database system or somewhere. You query against uh, Mm -hmm. Elasticsearch is brilliant Uh for that. Just stick JSON, like format all of the stuff Mm -hmm. as JSON. Stick it in Elasticsearch. You can fill that database up for a long time, and it just won't go slow. Yeah, the other thing I've seen done is uh, you basically break it into an object or a document, and you put it in MongoDB, and then you use MapReduce, because it, it, it has automatic MapReduce triggers you can call, yeah. and you write them in JavaScript, and so then it just breaks it up into concerns yeah. and does a lot of that really nice. If you have time series, you might want to use Cassandra, because that's also has some yeah. really nice features. And don't underestimate... And storage, which is also nice. Don't underestimate how far you can go on parts, right? I know, right? Like, yeah. you, you throw it in there, and you're like, oh, this is terrible, I'm just writing it up. But think about it. You know, even when you give it to somebody else, it's like, well, they can choose to redirect it to a file somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Or they can choose to send it to DevNull, right? If they want to see it, I mean... Don't underestimate how far that, that simple approach works. It's I've seen that two words piped to a system that we're just talking about. Right. It's funny how you guys want to take puts and then immediately go to like really important things. The next thing I always want after puts is decoration, like timestamps and, oh, and yeah. error level and, and yeah. polarization and that sort of thing, uh, because that's just how I write code. Um, so if you want that, you just take uh, longer and go the longer rounds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but the other thing is you have the log levels, so you can turn those on and off, and then right. your logging is specific to your environment, which is also very handy. Hmm. Okay, so new topic? New topic. We have, I think we have time for maybe one more topic. Probably. Right on. So, uh, threading. So, so threading yes. is something, threading is something we usually don't deal with when we're doing Rails apps. That's true. Because it's all request response, and we just don't do threading. Yeah, our web server will usually handle that if it handles that. Right. Yeah. So it's most so it's not good it, these days. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Most most of them do. But so the um, but when you're doing non-Rails apps, uh, threading is a really useful tool to reach for for a number of problems. Uh, like like these ETL applications, I just did something where okay, I wanted to be able to write to the second database while I'm reading the next chunk to process from the mm-hmm. first database, and it's great to do that in parallel and using threading. But I think that, uh, you know, for a lot of people who got their start doing Rails, threading is really scary in Ruby. Yeah. And well, there's not a lot of documentation or books that will tell you how to think about it in a clean way. Right. Like we have, we, we have are, a lot of books. There are, but they're all in C++. <laughs> See, I didn't, I didn't even know that. Like, mm-hmm. um, or Java. Or Java. Yeah, I, I, I didn't even know where, where to ask, like, when I was starting to write 
with demons, mm -hmm. I didn't know what questions to ask, and I tried to ask around, and the only, like, the only thing that I found was the Servalix gem from Tim Peace, mm -hmm. and even that assumes that you know a lot, right? Yeah, if you've listened to the show, also Jesse Storm, working with Unix processes, which Very is good. awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, so that would be probably one of the first things that would be great to say is read everything Jesse Storm has ever written. <laughs> yeah. Because um, he does really break a lot of this down. And it's all Ruby centric, which is what they explain. Yeah, but 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 don't like use rubydoc.org. Right. That you'll want to jump off a cliff if you try and do that. It's I, I, you know, so many of the of the docs there are just wrong or lies or incomplete or the wrong version or whatever. Probably the best habit to get into when you're getting into thread with Ruby is make this deal with yourself that you only use threads by creating a queue. Then launching a thread, then pushing things into the queue that the thread pulls mm -hmm. out of the queue. I was about to say the exact same thing. If you mm -hmm. if you make that deal with yourself, it's actually hard to screw up. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, it actually. Also, is. what is the thing that you put at the top? Thread dot raise on exception. Abort on exception Abort. equals true. Yes. yes, do that. Yes, and that means so by default, when a thread dies in Ruby, absolutely nothing happens as long as it's not the main thread. So. Your thread dies, then your program runs for some indeterminate amount of time until everything just goes horribly wrong. Or if you do abort on exception, the second an exception is raised in any thread, it goes all the way to the top of it because it works. So abort on exception is Ruby's way of saying, please somebody find my body. Yes, you're right, exactly. <laughs> so in particular, if you're working with tests, this is a very good thing. Yes. Like, oh yeah. If you're writing tests and you don't have abort on exception true, yeah, that's like a good thing to set up in your test file. Yeah, you're in file and you won't understand why. Yeah, but seriously, just uh, play with play with Ruby's queue. You have to require thread to get Ruby's queue. But it's a thread-safe queue. So as you push items in, or well, the important part is when you go to pop. If you go to pop and there's nothing in the queue, your thread goes to sleep. So, so, so it makes it like the semaphores I used to use in Smalltalk, which is my favorite way to do threading. Exactly. And then as soon as something is pushed into that queue, your thread will wake up, pull that item out, and do whatever it's going to do. It's so much nicer than mutexes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Do thread queue. It is the most important thing. There's also a sized queue in that same class. You can make a queue with a given size, mm. and it will let you put so many items in, and then it'll start throwing exceptions. So that if something does go horribly wrong and your consumer goes away, your producer won't just fill up the memory or whatever. So. Right. Is there any way to do a size with timeout? Uh, can you do timeouts on the queue? Like, um... You could wrap it in a timeout call and time it out that way. Yeah. There's also the queue you can change the default behavior where instead of putting the thread to sleep, it will raise a thread error if there's nothing for you to grab. So you can catch that error and yeah, you, you can, can do go a, on. You can do a non-blocking mode. Yeah, you okay. non-blocking mode basically, and then you can go on and do other things and try it for it again. Later. Yeah. Incidentally, uh, Ruby Tapas subscribers will be getting some episodes on threads and queues pretty soon. Are you just using our podcast to promote your work? <laughs> it's scandalous, isn't it? <laughs> By the way, that was the first three list. or four times. That was ten times funnier when I got to watch Josh turn to Avi and say that to his face. <laughs> it's, all, it's all in the eyebrows. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, are we done? Or was it time for picks? 
Right. Yeah, I so didn't unless... add anything else. Anybody else have anything else? No, this was a fun episode. You know what? I would add something else. It is a lot of fun to write things outside of Rails. You should do it. You should do yes. it. It's yeah. fun. Uh, we've talked a lot about the problems and the complications and... I, I know what we didn't talk about at all, oh. which, which is which is UI. UI, that's a good question. Yeah. All right, what do you got on your eye? I don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> a whole other episode. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's a whole other episode. You know, it's what, what we got shoes, we got curses, we, you know. Lots of tools. I saw, uh, MBCLI, a new library showing off a, uh, Lone Star that was, uh, kind of railsy CLI gem. It's used to do ROM, which is the Rackspace command line, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. There's lots of choices out there, and we probably should. Yeah, that's a good episode. Yeah. I, I came from Ruby programming land and wanted it in Ruby, and so I've tried everything, and they all stick. Shoes is... So we can spend an hour talking about that. Yeah, yeah, shoes is being rewritten to think less. That's right. Excellent, yes. What, they, they put a little foot powder? <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that note. <laughs> I, I, I just want to back up what James said as far as writing regular Ruby programs that aren't part of Rails. And part of the reason that, that I... I want to say it is not just so that you can go and whatever, but seriously, even if you get paid only to do Rails in your full-time job, you will pick up things about Ruby that still apply to the way that Rails works, mm-hmm. and it is a major level up. You'll, you'll find that you use Rails more effectively, too. So we're not just talking about pie-in-the-sky stuff that other people do because they're awesome. We're talking about stuff that will very literally pay off for you very quickly. Yes. So it's, so it's like everybody complains about how people who start doing web development with Rails don't really know anything about SQL or relational databases right. because active record hides it all. Yeah. Rails hides a whole bunch about how Ruby yeah. works. works, and we just talked about it for, what, an hour and a half. Right. And so, if I ever hear anyone say Poro again, I'm going to stab them in the eye. <laughs> I'll make sure to only do it when I'm in California and you're in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Alright, should we do picks? Yeah, let's do picks. James, what are your picks? I have two picks. Um, for a, uh, uh, technical tech pick, um, I used the JSON path library recently. Um, I have this API I'm working with and it sends me big dumps of nested data and, and if you, want to go through that in a safe manner, you know, it's see if this key is there, then if it is, grab this key, see if that gave you an array, if it is, grab that array, you know, and, and kind of all the way down, I got tired of writing that code, so I grabbed the JSON path gem, which is kind of like XPath for JSON, and you can just give these little uh, expressions, you know, this, then this, then this, then this, and it'll drill into the structure for you, and that. Uh, and get those things out of the middle. So uh, that was pretty handy for a project I've been working on. And then while the rogues have been on retreat, we've been doing various team building exercises, including one that almost killed David Brady. But um, uh, the one that didn't kill David Brady... He nearly got me killed. Uh, yeah, the one David Brady actually won before we tried to kill him the next day is that we all played a board game one night, and he won Robo Rally. Uh, and if you've never played River Rally, you should really play it. Uh, I learned it, uh, like, almost 20 years ago. It's been around forever in some form. And, uh, you're programming your robots to drive around this maniacal factory floor that's trying to kill you. Plus, everybody else in their robot is trying to kill you. And, uh, hilarity ensues. I think it's pretty much all we have to say about that. 
What are my picks? That was fun. Augie, what are your picks? Well, uh, the uh, Lone Star Conference gave Katrina a bottle of Bullet 10-Year Bourbon for keynoting, mm. and uh, I've, I've recommended the, the, the regular Bullet uh, on here before, but uh, I just got finally got to try the, the, the 10-Year. Thank you, Katrina. And uh, I, I recommend it. It's great. It's, uh, it's distinctive compared to some other bourbons I've, I've tried lately. It's, it's very dry. Um, actually, the first time I, I took a sip, I took a quick glance back at the bottle to see uh, if it was, in fact, their rye. So it's, it's a little bit different. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, good stuff. They also gave me a, uh, I should acknowledge, they gave me a bottle of Blantons, uh, but uh, I've already picked that, so I'm not going to talk about that today. All right, Josh, what are your picks? Uh, well, uh, you know, when I fly, uh, you know, you're not allowed to uh, have your electronics on at certain times of the flight, so I always like to take a, a dead tree copy of a book with me. And uh, recently I got a, a gift from a friend. He, he gave me a copy of John Scalzi's Red Shirts, and, uh, yeah, which, which I'm really enjoying. I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way through it, and it's hilarious. This is basically uh, fan fiction about Star Trek, the original series. And, you know, we all know that red shirts are the uh, security members wearing red shirts who beam down to the planet and get killed before the first commercial break, uh, you know, to show how perilous the world is. And uh, and this is a story about what if they figured that out and <laughs> and, and how would they respond to that. And, and it's it's a real mind work. So I'm, I'm having fun with that. And then, uh, since I'm on the subject of funny Star Trek fan fiction, there's a book that I read uh, a number of years ago by John M. Ford called How Much for Just the Planet. And uh, that's basically, well, you know how every show has a musical episode? Buffy had a musical episode. I think Xena had a musical episode. This is the Star Trek original series musical episode. <laughs> and, and, I, and I lost track of how many times Captain Kirk was dumped down a laundry chute. <laughs> so, so that one that uh that one has been uh like out of print in the dead tree copy for a while but there's now a kindle version on amazon and uh, you can find used copies as well so that's it for me katrina what are your picks i have two picks today one is the open source report card i don't know if it's been picked already but it's pretty cool it connects to your github sucks out all the data about when you commit how you know the issues and the pull requests and um, and all of that, the times of that. And so I looked at Steve Klavnik's, uh, open source report card. He's in the top 1%, uh, in, in terms of productivity among Ruby developers. Um, We're in the 99%, right? I'm not sure. I didn't check all of us. I should. Um, it, it, ha it has funny things like it, it will tell you that you're an early day or late night committer or that you work best, uh, late in the week or whatever. Um, wow. It, it will tell you who you might be similar to. It says, among other things, that I most certainly have a relationship with Jumpstart Lab, though my language is much more foul. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Um, it's fun. So, uh, open source report card. The other pick is a website I came across on quite a while ago. It's a data visualization of the the underground in New York. So it's called MTA.me. And the thing is, is that as the as the little trains leave and, and go along their paths, when they cross each other, it they um, it's a visualization with sound of <laughs> a string instrument. So the length of the what? of the tracks are, are 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 as strings being plucked. And so it's this kind of 
it's, it's whimsical and it's kind of poetic and beautiful and a bit odd. Uh, and, and it's just strangely beautiful. So mta.me. What do you, what do you like, or what do you think of the word sensualization? Because it's not just a visualization, right, there's an auditory component. Yeah, I like it. I tried that word last week and I liked it. <laughs> awesome. Dave, what are your picks? My picks are, uh, the first one is the Serve Gem, and I'm going to open this up for rebuttal. Uh, I love the Serve Gem because, yeah, basically, you go into a directory and you type Serve, and now on 4000, 4000 or 8080, you can open a browser, and it understands MIME types. It'll render Markdown. If you've got Thin installed, it'll use it. If you've got WebRick, it'll use that. It just makes standing up a web server right here really, really easy. And I threw out a personal project that I've been working on to use that, so I love that. So I'm open to rebuttal if there's something newer, because it's, like, stable. It's, it's quite a while, quite a bit old. So in my Jeopardy game at um, uh, OSRC, I pulled a seldom known... Uh, feature has a standard library. There's a library in the ships ruby called un, un, mm -hmm. and it's called that so that when you do dash r, you can just put the un after mm -hmm. it, and it's dash run, basically. And this library's purpose for existence is to bring unity-like commands to Windows. So it, uh, imports file details, and then, uh, uh, at the top level scope, you have access to commands like, uh, commands like CP or, uh, things like that, uh, common, uh, Unixisms. Um, but, as part of that, one of its features is, uh, it, it gives you an HTTP command or something like that, that, uh, stands up a web server. Uh, you know, a lot of times you see, uh, Python, uh, one-liners. This is how you start, uh, uh, Python server in one line, and it turns out you can do the exact same thing in Ruby using one. Will it handle like my types and it's a, stuff? It's a good question. He's Weber under the hood, mm -hmm. and I don't know what it does and does not handle. I assume it's low feature. I'll, I'll have to play with it. Serve is very high feature. It's mm -hmm. a, yeah, very, very cool stuff. Yeah, I'm, I, I think it's cool. I love being able to use Pirate web server. So. Yeah. It served as well, I think it's great. And, and so basically what you're doing is Ruby space dash R space UN. Uh, you don't have to have the space. The space is optional. Yeah. So, it, it, oh. It's like the Ubi Gems uh, version of Ruby That's Gems. That's right. There's oh, right. also a Ruby Gems file so that you can just do dash R Ruby Gems yeah. without the space. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it's uh, check out on Un has a help. I think you can do uh, uh, Ruby dash it run help or something like that, and it will tell you the commands. Nice. Does it work on Windows? Do you know? Yeah, that's the whole point. It's working on libraries. It yeah, works yeah. on Windows. Okay. My second pick is Effective JavaScript, uh, 68 Specific Ways to Harness the Power of JavaScript by David Herman. And the reason I love this book so much is that in the first chapter, he basically goes through, here's all the stuff in JavaScript that is basically crap, and you can avoid it. And then the next section is, Here's all the stuff in JavaScript that's basically crap, but you cannot avoid it, so you must learn this minefield. And then he goes on to say, here's all the wonderful stuff. So like one of the minefields is don't try to bring an OO framework onto a prototype uh, inherited language. All these frameworks that try to jam OO eventually have impedance mismatches, and this is why. Fantastic book. Really highly recommend it. Yeah, that'll make your life easier. If you want to know more about it, there was a JavaScript Jabber episode on it in January. Excellent. 
So go listen. Dave, David is very knowledgeable about JavaScript in the ecosystem there. So um, I've got a couple of picks. I've been working for a client uh, doing push notification stuff. If you need to build that into your app, then I'm going to pick the GS-APNS-GEM. Um, and APNS just stands for Apple Push Notification Service. And uh, it's based on an older gem, but it's the most maintained and had the best documentation. Honestly, it's not hard to stand up, but it's really awesome. A few other picks. I'm sure these have been picked on the show before, but uh, we are sitting around a table with a blue Yeti microphone um, set to omnidirectional with the gain turned about a third of the way up, um, and it seems to be working pretty well. And we're recording it into my MacBook using um, Adobe Audition. So those, those are my other two picks. And uh, if there's nothing else, then keep an eye out for the Ruby Best Practice Patterns book that we are putting together. And uh, we'll catch you all next week. And if you go for a walk in Austin, take four friends. And some water. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.